0: All right, well let me invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. and Acts chapter one, Acts chapter one. And we're going to stand together and we're going to read verses 12 through 26, verses 12 through 26. Acts chapter one, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a that is, field. Of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men uh, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in. And out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when Jesus was taken up from us, one of these men must accompany, uh, must, must be, become, <laughs> one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Lord, we come humbly to this text. And we ask Now that you would have your way with us. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And allow me as your messenger, as your mouthpiece, to proclaim your truth faithfully so that we can all be changed and conformed to your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we can glorify you with our lives. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Many years ago, when my son Adam was a toddler, he was very inquisitive about everything. And I remember there were two phrases that he knew and he repeated very often. The first one was, and he had a little lisp, right? It was, pitha, dad, pitha because we lived right near a Hungry Howie's, and every time we we drove by, he would see it, and he'd say, Pitha, Dad, Pitha. And of course, as a dad, how can you say no to something like that, right? Of course, there may have been times when I used that for my own benefit, but that's a whole other story. But there was another phrase that he would use, and it was this, what's that, Dad, what's that? I mean, we could be anywhere, and he's pointing, and he's saying, what's that, Dad, what's that? What's that, what's that? He wanted to know. He wanted to learn. He wanted to understand. And friends, one of the first questions we should ask of a text is this. Why is this text here? See, we should always be asking questions. And the question that we begin with is, why is this text here? Why did God, in breathing out his word, choose to put this text in this book in this section, at this place. Now think about it. Verses 1 through 11, we've already looked at. Jesus is telling his apostles that he's leaving and that they will be receiving the promise of the Father, but they are to go to Jerusalem and wait. And in verse 11, Jesus is gone. Then in chapter 2, we have Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes. So why do we have verses 12 through 26? Is it just to tell us that the apostles went to Jerusalem and to wait? Is it just a bland historical record kind of setting things up for chapter 2? Why do we have these verses? Is there something else going on? And I would suggest to you that the context of the book of Acts, as well as the events recorded in these verses, are telling us to pay attention to something else. There is something comforting, something assuring, both for Theophilus, who is the person to whom this is written, as well as for the reader that is, that is driven by the providence of God. And here are just a couple of things I think are, are helpful to understand. that these, this, these verses are here, first of all, to tell us that nothing can stand in the way of God's plan. The religious leaders won't stand in the way, even with their scheming and mocking. We saw that in the Gospels, didn't we? The political leaders of that day won't stand in the way, even when they put up a kangaroo court to find someone who is actually innocent guilty. A traitorous disciple will not stand in the way, even if he was able to turn his master into the authorities. An angry crowds won't stand in the way, even if they are gathered together yelling, crucify him, crucify him. The point here is this, that nothing can stand in the way of God's plan. Secondly, God's plan will be accomplished. Now this is all kind of from the context of what's going on. God's plan will be accomplished, even with a few ragged, unsophisticated, Galileans. At the beginning of Acts, we have 120 people gathered together. These are the ones God has brought together to mark the beginning of God's church. And by the end of the book of Acts, we have thousands who have been converted and churches formed in cities all across the Mediterranean. It's a powerful statement that we begin here with this small group of people. And yet God has a plan and that plan will be accomplished. And and this is the backdrop of comfort and encouragement that this text has for all who are reading it. And it's a reminder that it is God who accomplishes his plan. It's God who's accomplishing that plan. He uses weak... uh, faithful but weak followers of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish his mission. And as we look at our text, these apostles have been told by Jesus that he was setting them on a mission that would start in Jerusalem and spread out to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And so in verses 12 through 26, we find the apostles getting themselves ready, preparing themselves for the journey ahead. But the emphasis here is not on logistics. The emphasis here is on spiritual matters, things that truly matter. So what I would like to propose to you that this text can be broken down into three parts. And what we have here are three essential commitments for readiness. And maybe the question for us today is this. Are we ready for what God has Next, now for for the the apostles here, the next was the coming of the Holy Spirit and the mission to start. Well, that may not be our next. God in His providence and sovereignty may have a different next for us. If we were beginning in, in you know 2020, I could have had a New Year's services. God's going to do something this year. It's going to be so powerful, and we would have been like, "Ah!" That's not what we would have thought. So many churches had this 2020 vision thing going on, right? God had other plans. But the question is are you ready? Are we ready for what God has next? So they're told to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father. So as they wait, they are not idle but demonstrate a threefold commitment to their mission, a commitment to one another, a commitment to the scriptures, and then a commitment to the establishing of right leadership. And friends, those three aspects are absolutely essential for any healthy community of God. Let's begin with a a commitment to one another. At the beginning of this text, Luke seeks to give us a better understanding of who is gathered there in Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Father. And the details he gives not only shed light on this group that is gathered, but also on how we are to read the Gospels. I think sometimes we come to the Gospels, even to the book of Acts, with kind of ideas that fill in the gaps, so to speak. And some of the, the stuff that we're going to find here helps us to, to fill in those gaps. So notice, first of all, those who are gathered. Did you you notice how many people are gathered? Luke tells us, verse 15, Luke tells us in a parenthetical statement that the company of persons was about 120. Of those 120, there were 11. Those were the disciples, now apostles. Right? Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas, the son of James, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot. Then we have the women, the women plural, and then specifically Mary is mentioned. Then we have the brothers of Jesus. Again, no names are mentioned and no numbers necessarily mentioned there. Then we have others, and we we figured that out because as they're gathering trying to figure out, well, who's going to take Judas's place, the company, the assembly, is supposed to look within within themselves and determine who can we put forward, and they put forward two men that haven't been mentioned yet, right? They have Joseph and Matthias, and, and it's possible that you have Nicodemus there, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, Lazarus. So there, there are other people that could be there, but we know that there's 120 in this assembly. Now, how does this help us in reading Acts and the Gospels. Because we often think of the disciples with Jesus journeying in the Gospels, doing this kinds of ministry, kind of as a small number, the 12 plus Jesus, so 13 of them. But, the, but Scripture helps round things out. Because we know that along with the disciples, there were also women who were present. So this this, this group of people that were traveling together with Jesus and ministering, was certainly a group larger than 13. And what we find here is that it not only included women, but it also included other men who were not official disciples, but were part of the group. And again, it just it helps us then as we go back into the Gospels to read some of the stories and just have in our mind's eye that there were more than simply the disciples and Christ and some of these women. There was actually more men who were gathered, a good number. Maybe not 120, but certainly a larger number. Now, it's a reminder, isn't it, that it takes far more people to carry out God's mission than we tend to think from reading God's word. There are many who are involved in word ministry, in other words, Jesus and the disciples, or in our case, elders and teachers. But there are many more who are involved in support ministry, who use their gifts to make sure that word ministry goes forward. And we've got to be really, really careful that we're not somehow walking around saying, well, these are the word ministry people. I mean, we, word ministry people, we are the elite. No, that's not the way it works. Without support ministry, word ministry wouldn't go forward. You get that? And there's a need for us to recognize the importance of of all of those because those who are doing word ministry are exercising their spiritual gifts for the glory of God. Those who are using support ministry, doing that, they're they're using their own spiritual gifts to make sure that what God wants to have accomplished is being accomplished. It takes far more than maybe what we think to actually do the ministry that God is calling us to. It should also remind us that those who may not be in leadership, but who are looking and learning and growing, may be in the wings being prepared for the kind of leadership that God wants them to have. In particular, as we're gonna see, someone then is put in place to replace Judas. But that person's been there all along. And so even as we have had the blessing of having you know Johnny and Tia here present with us, we realize that there's a need to invest in people and to see that God is gonna take that investment and he's gonna do something with it. He's gonna be glorified, but we have to be committed to not only word ministry people, but support ministry people. And so what we find then in this text, as we're talking about being committed to one another, is that this one anotherness is marked by three things. The first is found in verse 4. Jesus had told them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And what do we find them doing? Well, they're going to Jerusalem and settling down to wait for God's promise. Look at verse twelve. And they returned to Jerusalem from the uh, from the, the the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when it had when they had entered, they went uh, up to the upper room where they were staying. So, waiting friends is not one of our best virtues, is it? Uh, we're people of action, especially here in the United States, and especially here in the Bay Area. We're people of action. We, we, we want to do something. Smart people take charge. They have a plan and they take action. But what they are doing is returning to Jerusalem from Mount, the Mount of Olives about a Sabbath day's journey, which is simply to say about three quarters of a mile. It sounds like in you know, it's like it's a long journey. No, it's three quarters of a mile, but they were limited by the Sabbath. And when Jesus was crucified, Remember, the disciples were scattered. They all went back, many of them went back to their towns and villages. Some some of them went back to their own vocations. We find a window into that when we find Peter going back to his fishing at the end of John's gospel, and of course it was a big failure. So they they had scattered, but now they have regrouped. After the resurrection, there's a regrouping here, and they're gathering together in Jerusalem. This is a, a summit of God's people in Jerusalem. And they've not only seen the risen Savior, but they have been given this mission to the end of the earth. And everything in them may have been saying, there are people to be won. There are cities to be evangelized. Let's get going in this mission. Let's get going. Let's get going. But Jesus had told them to do what? To wait. And so the first thing is obedience. Together they journeyed in Jerusalem in obedience to the instructions of Jesus. Secondly, I want you to notice is fellowship. Notice the expression, all these with one accord. Now it's going to move into something they're doing, but it gives a window here into understanding that they were united together. There's a sense of unity, of fellowship, of togetherness, this multicolored band of 120 believers gathering together, needing each other, helping one another, serving one another, encouraging one another. There seems to be about a a 10-day period of this waiting that is going on here, and they're gathered in the upper room. Now, let me ask you this. What happens to your home when 120 people show up? So I don't think this was the same upper room where Jesus met with his disciples before, you know, the passion started. What we have here probably is a wealthy home that had an upper room. And of course, over there in Palestine, you know, in Jerusalem, you have these homes where they, they have these, these kind of, they build on top. My friend is from, um, from Bethlehem. And when he and his wife got married, they just built another level. And the upper level was where mom and dad lived. So mom and dad are always getting the, the brand new stuff. The kids get the old stuff, right? This is how they work. They, they work up. But usually there's like this big up up upstairs kind of a thing. And so there must have been a big home to, to take care of 120 people. Now, can you imagine feeding all of those people? you got to think, you know, again, practically all these different things are going on. This is what happens when, when God's people get together. So here in this picture of the early church, we see the seeds of fellowship that we need in our church today. A unity in Christ, a common purpose and vision, people opening their homes and practicing hospitality, some providing food for the group, and in the midst of it all, honest discussion about the things of the Lord. I just imagine the kind of things that were being talked about. I mean, wow, could you believe that Jesus showed up and he showed us his hands and his feet. And can you imagine all the things that he was saying? It's just hard to it's hard to comprehend, and yet it's true. We've seen, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that they would have been talking about. Someone was likely giving their thoughts on what might happen, what might lie ahead specifically, or others were chiming in with a different angle. There's always that smart person who comes in at the end saying, look, it's not let's not get carried away here. Jesus said the promise of the Father is coming, and It is something to do with the Spirit coming upon us, but we don't really know exactly what it means, so let's just stop speculating. Let's just just wait, and let's see. But man, can you imagine the discussions that were going on? Friends, God created the church because he knows that we need other people to teach us, to counsel us, to help us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to support us. And likewise, God calls us to do the same for others. It's not just about what can I get from the church, but where can I serve in the church and be that vehicle that God is using to help this fellowship take place. So there's this wonderful, consistent presence of fellowship. One time I asked a a president of a university, what is the definition of fellowship? And he said, two fellows in a ship. It wasn't quite what I was looking for, but I got the point. And, and he, he explained it a little bit more. He said, it's two fellows really in, in a ship. And think of a, a rowboat, and they're pulling together. All right? And, and then that opens your mind and saying, all right, fellowship means people gathering together with a unified cause, with a unified purpose, understanding their commitment to one another, pulling in the same direction. And that's what we have here. 120 people gathered together because they have been called to a mission. Now, specifically, the apostles have been called, but there is a support around the apostleships here. Okay, So we have obedience, we have fellowship, and then, of course, finally, what's clear in this text is prayer. Obedience, fellowship, and prayer. Continually, we're told here, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Again, prayer is not necessarily what we turn to when we're waiting. We actually kind of probably think that, well, no, you don't need to pray. You need to get out there, right? You know, someone's saying, well, I'm, I'm looking for a job, and so what are you doing? I'm praying about it. I realize that might be the place where you say, look, prayer is good, but you need to get out there, right? I get that. But sometimes when we're waiting, what we should be doing is we should be bathing that waiting in prayer. If we understand the power of prayer, we might stop being driven so much to do and be much more driven to prayer. Now, notice that this prayer is the emphasis of their activity. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer is what the the Greek text is talking about. That means that when someone said, hey, what should we do today? The answer is, oh, we should pray. And we should pray. That's not saying that they're not eating and they're not talking, but there was a strong emphasis on prayer. Now, friends, rightly committing yourself to prayer, especially in those times when you are confused or waiting, is the priority for the believer. So what do you think that they prayed about? I was reminded, as I was kind of studying for this time and for this text, uh, about the Acts acrostic, A-C-T-S, I just thought we might use that to kind of maybe think about ways that they were praying. We're not told specifically what they were praying about. X stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So adoration. They had seen God work mightily over the last couple of months. We've seen that in the Gospels. And now as Jesus is taken uh, you know, to the leadership and he is he's found guilty and he's crucified and he's buried and he rose again, they have a lot to adore about what God has been doing. In particular, they saw the fulfillment of Christ's words. And here's what Jesus said. Jesus was going to Jerusalem and that he would be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they would condemn him to death and they would mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he would rise again. And all of these things happened just as he said and maybe the adoration spilled over into the fact that they realized that Jesus had died for their sins and that now they were part of God's family. Well, they must have praised God for his plan of salvation that would come to both the Jews and the Gentiles a lot then to adore God for. Confession. They were just called to an incredible mission. And when you are a Galilean, you're somewhat of a nothing, you're frail, You're weak, you go to God in prayer, why? Because you realize that you fall far short of being worthy to the calling that you've been called to. Peter had denied Jesus, the disciples had scattered. They knew they were frail and sinful, so confession of their sin and inadequacy would have been right. Thanksgiving, they must have been thankful for what the Lord had done and for what Jesus had accomplished on the cross for what he had taught them about the kingdom. Thanks for for the forgiveness that they had received and the restoration and for God's kindness in giving them this assignment. Or maybe supplication. This is now where they're they're asking for help. It's not really God-focused so much, it's, it's really asking for things, right? They must have asked God for help, for faithfulness, for strength, for wisdom, that they wouldn't fail him that uh, they would know and understand when the promise of the Father came and what it all meant and and how they were to to work with it. Friends, as we wait, as we seek to be prepared for what God has for us next, we must encourage one another to continue to be obedient. We would do well to seek to minister to one another and enjoy the fellowship of the body of Christ and to take time to rest our souls in God through faithful devotion to prayer. We are to be committed to one another. Secondly, not only committed to one another, but committed to the scriptures. You say, well, how do you get that, Pastor Rod? And we must read this passage, this this next section, verses 15 through 20, with the backdrop of what took place at the end of Luke's gospel. That's in chapter 24. And then we can also read the beginning of the book of Acts. So turn to Luke 24, if you would. Now, you probably already know this, but I want you to see it once again. If you remember, these two disciples have left Jerusalem. Jesus has died. They are discouraged. They're going back to Emmaus. They're going back home. We're not told who these disciples are. They may not have been the official disciples, but followers who were there with the group that followed along with Jesus. And what they re- don't realize in verse 27 is that Jesus comes and he speaks to them. And it says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, that's, 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 that's a powerful statement right there, isn't it? I mean, Jesus unfolding the Old Testament, revealing himself. And then after that, their eyes were opened to see who it was and realized it was him. Then a little later in chapter 24 and verse 44, the disciples are gathered together and Jesus is speaking to them. And he opens up their eyes. And this is what he says. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the point here is that Jesus is teaching, he's exposing, he's showing them from the Old Testament who he is. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 we read, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So during those 40 days he's speaking, he's teaching, he's instructing them. All of that's backdrop to say what happens next is rooted in the Scripture. So to be sure, what Jesus had revealed about himself from the scriptures would have been part of the discussion, uh, the fellowship of these 120 people that are gathered. And so it's no surprise that when Peter stands up to speak, that what he has to say is rooted in the Old Testament. And what he identifies in scripture in particular speaks to their very situation. And I want to just point out to you, first of all, Scripture's warning, here's what he says. Ultimately, he says, the wicked will be judged. Now see, this is a warning of Scripture. If you oppose God, if you are against God, if you seek to undermine the plan of God, you will be judged. And that reality was staring them in the face. Because one from their own ranks, a fellow disciple, one with whom they had ministered and prayed and shared meals and spent time in fellowship with, one of their own had turned against Jesus by betraying him to the religious leadership for 30 pieces of silver. And Peter says it this way, Judas had been a guide to those who arrested Jesus. That's, that's all he says really to describe all of that. And Luke adds as a parenthetical summary of what Judas had done after he betrayed Jesus. Notice verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of all his, In the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called the Field of Blood. Now, friends, this is a rather graphic summary, isn't it? A headlong fall. This is what nightmares are made of. Bursting open in the middle, and his bowels gushing out. This is gruesome stuff that we find in horror stories. And it became known to all the inhabitants of of Jerusalem. What, What a reputation. What a thing to be known for. A treacherous betrayal. A gruesome death. A field of blood. So Judas, was it worth the 30 pieces of silver? Was it worth the prize that you thought you were going to get? Was it worth the regret that you had afterward? And that regret isn't repentance. It was just feeling bad about what he did. Now, to any Christian who has been around for a while, you might be raising your eyebrows a little bit and thinking to yourself, now, wait a minute. I thought that Judas went and hanged himself. Isn't that what it says in Matthew's gospel? And the answer is yes. But there's a logic to how Matthew's gospel and Luke's account fit together. Let me just clarify that for us. We're going to take a little bit here, but this is important. Judas didn't actually purchase the field in question. If you remember, it was, it was purchased when Judas came back. He felt remorse over what he did, and he comes back to the religious leaders, and he throws the 30 pieces of silver on the temple floor. So he's returning this money, but the religious leaders wanted nothing to do with that money and so they instructed for that money to be used to purchase a field a potter's field see so it wasn't so much that judas went and purchased it but the money that, that was his was being used to purchase that field right so the religious leaders wouldn't keep it and they had someone else do it so we can we can we can recognize here that these two accounts Matthew is is saying is describing judas's full guilt and remorse by hanging himself acts describes judas's bali. falling uh, falling and bursting open. So we can conclude that when Judas hanged himself, likely from a tree that was over a ravine, and as morbid as it sounds, it is to be um, talking about when when someone is looking to hang themselves, they, they typically want it to be over quickly. They don't want to suffer. So likely Judas tied the rope to a branch and jumped to snap his neck, and either the rope gave way in some fashion, or the branch didn't hold, and his body falls to the ground and bursts open. This is just this is typically how how these these two things are brought together in understanding of what took place here. Now, verse 25 tells us the end result of Judas. This ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own. This word place is understood to be a euphemism for hell. This was Judas's end. This is is where he ends up. And of course, even what Luke says here, he talks about his wickedness. All right? The point is that the wicked, those who shake their fist or oppose God, will be judged. Whether it is Pharaoh who hardened his heart against God to eventually die in the waters of the Red Sea. Whether it's Haman, if you remember the story there of Esther, where he tried to have all the Jews destroyed, he ends up dying a death that he had planned for someone else. Whether it's Jezebel, who was eaten by dogs, or even Judas, who's betrayed the very son of God. Whoever stands opposed to God will meet their maker in judgment. Now, friends, we must be convinced of that. Either that'll take place here on this earth, this earth, and if it doesn't take place on this earth, we can be certain it will take place before the throne of God. Friends, that is a, a comfort and an assurance that true justice will be meted out. If we want a God of love like our culture wants, that is just all emotion, then what you lose is the truth of justice. Because a loving God in the world's eyes will not exercise justice because that would be perceived as unloving. Now friends, this is a distorted view of, of God. God's people are assured here. So, not only do we see Scripture's warning, but we also see Scripture's Fulfillment. My friends, I want you to notice here that God's plan will be realized. Let me draw your attention to Peter's words. It says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. This is verse 16, by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So he's saying, in the scriptures, where David is speaking, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, (laughs) He's making the distinction here, and he's actually going to quote some scriptures here. Two Psalms, Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109, verse 8. Now, Psalm 69.25, I'm just going to try and summarize this as briefly as I can. But here we have David crying out to God to save him from his mighty enemies, and he confesses to God, zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do for you, Lord. That's verse 9. And so he cries out in verse 19, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. You begin to hear some of the things in here, and it sounds a lot like what was going on with Jesus many years later. Surrounded by enemies who mock him. And they're out to kill him, looking for comfort in his hour of need amongst his friends. But he is, he's, uh, his, his disciples are uh, departing from him. They're falling asleep. And when he's arrested, they flee and they deny him. And when he's on the cross, the soldiers give him sour drink. And then David, in his request, or um, lists some requests for how God is to deal with his enemies. And this is where we get our text. Look at verse 24. Pour out your indignation on them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. That's the portion. That's what he's quoting. And what he's saying is this is what has happened to Judas. He is an enemy. He is one who is opposed to God. He is opposed to Christ. So all of these events are happening to David, but the psalm is pointing to the greater David, Jesus Christ. And then the psalm 109 verse 8, which says, let another take his office. And it comes from a psalm where David, again, is crying out for help from those who attack without cause. And again, this is a picture of the greater David. And around there, these ones who are attacking He's saying this is Judas who is being an attacker and he is going to then need to be replaced because he is going to be judged. So this is, this is how this is happening. Now say, wow, that's, that's, that's kind of wild stuff that, that Peter would be, excuse me, quoting all this. The point is that Peter had been doing his homework in studying God's word. Now either he heard even Jesus as he was going through the Old Testament, pointing out these things, not only about himself, but even the players in the story of the gospel, Judas being one of them, so he was aware of it. Or he, in God's providence, was able to study the scriptures and come to those conclusions himself. We, we're not told how Peter came to this understanding, but we're told that Peter did come to this right understanding. And in so doing, he had to stand up and speak. And one of the reasons he had to stand up and speak is because Judas is gone, and he needs to be replaced based on Scripture. And friends, it is a reminder to us. It's a reminder to us of the importance of Scripture. That it's through Scripture that God reveals Himself to us. And we take this emphasis on prayer and the study of God's Word and you imagine the beginnings of what needs to take place for revival to come to God's people. You study the history of revivals. This is what took place. Prayer and the study of God's word. Prayer and the study of God's word. And friends, in times of waiting and uncertainty, God's people can be doing something. Right? We've already seen they can practice obedience. They can enjoy fellowship of the body. They can unite together in prayer. They can search and study the scriptures. These are active things that God calls us to. So a commitment to one another, a commitment to the scriptures, and finally here, a commitment to right leadership. Judas must be replaced because the scriptures demand it. But there are other reasons why Judas needs to be replaced. See, the 12 are a special group. They they must continue to be intact. In the Gospels, we see Jesus choosing 12 men to be his, his, his disciples, to sit under him, to learn from him. Now they transition from being disciples, those are learners, to apostles, which means sent out ones. And they have been training for three years, and now they're being sent on a mission as Christ's messengers. And so this ministry and apostleship that's talked about, uh, from which Judas turned aside, is, is this formal group of, of 12 that Jesus has raised up. And it says here in verse verse 17, Judas was allotted his share in the ministry. That's a portion. That's a share. And each of these men then had a share. And so someone else needed to take up that share. That's the first reason. Secondly, to be truly Jewish, their number needed to be 12. Not 11, not 10, not 13, But 12, why? To represent the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, 12 is just thoroughly throughout Judaism, isn't it? Now, again, one of the things that we need to remind ourselves of is that Christianity is the ultimate outgrowth of Judaism. Somehow we've kind of distinguished in our minds, oh, that's Judaism over there, and somehow a new religion started up called Christianity, not so. What you have is Judaism ultimately coming up to butt up against Christ and the Jews ultimately reject Jesus and carry on in their Judaism. They don't see that that Christianity is the natural, rightful outgrowth of the Old Testament Judaism. So modern day Jews, friends, are those who fail to see Christ as their Messiah and so remain in place of disobedience and unbelief. So the emphasis of 12 remains. We're even going to see it in the book of Revelation. Finally, Judas needs to be replaced before the coming of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the 12 need to be intact before the promise from the Father is going to be unleashed on them. So there's a sense of urgency going on here, friends. And Peter stands up and he speaks. And he says, look, we need to replace Judas who failed who's gone to his place with another. But who can replace Judas? How are they going to go about it? Let's first of all talk about the criteria then that is necessary here. Not surprisingly, there are three specific qualifications for an apostle beyond character and competence put forward by Peter. First of all, if you look at verse 21, the first point of character is he must be a man. This must be a man. Now, it might seem unnecessary to say this, but in today's context and culture, it needs to be pointed out, the apostle was to be a man and not a woman. You know, in today's context, and if you were to see something like this on, on Facebook, you'd have a bunch of people in the crowd saying, well, why can't it be a woman? I don't know why you want it to be a man. You'll have all this kind of stuff. And yet, In scripture, it's very, very clear that this is supposed to be a man. And it's not certainly something that is a put down on women at all. Of course, the the foolish charges and outcries that Christianity is patriarchal or misogynistic, they begin to fly. But of course, they fail to see, or better to, to say it this way, they choose to ignore how the coming of Christianity both liberated and elevated women from a second class citizenship up to a level where they were on par with other people. We forget that. But in God's economy, the responsibility, the accountability is put on the shoulders of men. Gentlemen, if you are a husband, the responsibility for your marriage is on your shoulders, not your wife's. Here in the church, the responsibility of the health and the welfare of the church is put on the shoulders of the elders. That's part of God's design. So Jesus chooses 12 men to be disciples, and now he's also going to choose another one, another man, to fill the void left by Jesus. Secondly, not only must be a man, but must have accompanied the apostles since Jesus' baptism. It says that they were there during all the time when Jesus went in and out among us. They were there when ministry was going on, but they weren't the formal disciples, but they were there. Now, doesn't this rock your world of understanding? Now, you mean to say there were others beyond the disciples that went along with Jesus' ministry? Yes, we just we talked about that. It's just it helps us then round out our understanding of what was going on. Now, the 120 here are being asked by Peter to put forward candidates plural. And we can rightly infer that there were many men who also traveled with Jesus. And the disciples, and from them, they're going to choose, two. The third characteristic or qualification or criteria, that he must have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Not necessarily he was there watching it happen, but the point there is that he witnessed Christ. He saw Christ post-resurrection to realize he truly did die. He was buried, and he rose from the tomb, and he, they were there witnessing. Why? I mean, he was going to be a witness after all, right? Going back to what we talked about last week, this legal witness sharing not someone else's facts, but the facts that you have because you saw it, you heard it, you were there. Now friends, it's, it's important for us just to, to pause a little bit here and to remind ourselves that in our culture, it is, it is, that is, that tends to be more and more entitled and all about equality and equity that needing qualifications to take on a job or responsibility is becoming a rather antiquated attitude and practice. Why do I have to be qualified? Shouldn't I have the freedom to do what I want to do? Yet for filling the void in the apostleship left by Judas, these qualifications had to be met. And there's some practical guidance here relating to the need for qualified leadership in the church. Elders must be men. Not because men are better, but because in God's economy, church leadership rests on the shoulders of men. Elders also then must meet the qualifications listed in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And these qualifications demand character, competence, as well as gifting. And as such, church elders, which when Uh, which exists when each elder is serving as a shepherd or a pastor. This is the the biblical form of church leadership. And it's not something that should be taken lightly, but seriously and, and with much gravity. The church has, friends, the church has suffered too long by functioning with unbiblical forms of leadership to the detriment of the church. I have experienced that. I have been a part involved in that. I have felt the results of that. A gifted businessman doesn't equal a qualified elder. A good guy who's popular and is liked by many people in the church doesn't equate to being qualified as an elder. A man who loves to talk about theology doesn't make him qualified to be an elder. No, he must meet the qualifications of character competence, and giftedness that are laid out in Scripture. That's why here at Gateway, the process for eldership takes between one and a half to two years, from the beginning when someone is a prospective elder to the place where they're brought on as an elder because they need to be seen. They need to interact. You need to see how they deal with people and how they handle the word and how they shepherd and how they guide people. Friends, this is so important to take this criteria seriously, so there 's the criteria. Then we move on to the process then, and it 's no surprise is it that that, that when they, these hundred and twenty people assembled, they put two men forward. they find Joseph, who was known by other names, Bar and Justice, probably a family name, and then um, Justice, I think is a Gentile name. I know you know for me it's kind of like you know growing up, I had a bunch of different names, Roddy, Dor, Woogie. Ruru and Dorothy. If you need questions on that, I'll talk to you later about that. But nothing more really is known about Joseph except tradition would say that he drank poison and he didn't didn't die as a result of it. It's one of the things he's known for. Um, Matthias, whose name means gift of God, is not mentioned beyond this text. Again, though tradition, I say tradition, just oral tradition, has him being a witness to the Ethiopians. Now, although the assembly put these two candidates forward, they understood that it would be the Lord, that would be Jesus, who would choose the right man to be his apostle. And just as Jesus chose the 12 disciples, now he will choose Judas's replacement. So that drives the people to do two things. Not surprisingly, the first one is prayer. They've already gathered together, prayer together, even while they're waiting Seemed to be the norm. It was the thing they were devoted to. And now they're coming up with this thing that's really important. They're gathered together. They know we have to bathe this in prayer. And notice their prayer. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. You get this? It's this not about us. Show which one you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Lord, you show whom you have chosen. We don't want to decide. It's not our decision to make. Only you have the authority and the right to choose your apostle. See, people didn't choose the apostle. They're saying, the Lord choose the apostle. You're the one that has to do this. Well, how is that going to happen practically? Well, through the casting of lots. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles, we're told. Now, you might kind of say to yourself, whoa, 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 whoa. this is casting lots, and this is in the New Testament. You see, this is, this is this, this, you might think, is this a pagan thing that's going on here? Well, no, the truth of the matter is that they were following the pattern of divine insight that was instituted by God to be a practice Periodically in the Old Testament, not always, but periodically in special occasions. And what's interesting though is that when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, this is actually the last account that we have of casting lots taking place. So the implication is that once the Spirit is present, there's a new way to kind of discern the will and understanding of, of, of God. Okay? And the significance here that we need to see is that the people knew this. It was the Lord through the casting lots that was determining who the right person was going to be. So Christ has spoken in answer to their prayer and through the process of casting lots, now the 11 are 12 again and the promise of the Father could come. So now as a church considers qualified leadership. The process must be bathed in prayer. It cannot be simply through the mechanism of Robert's Rules of Order. It cannot be simply through voting and saying, "Oh, I think this guy's a good guy." It has to be bathed in prayer. It has to be a process where the character of that person is on display. You don't want to rush into anything. Now we've walked through all of this, and I want to leave you with just a number of thoughts to drive us to consider more. And I'm not going to bring too many new thoughts. I'm just going to kind of nurse the things that we've already talked about here. I want to begin with a question. Do you believe that God's plan is still on the table? I mean, what have we experienced over the past year or so? War, disease in the form of a pandemic. Fire, if you remember last year, even now, right? Political unrest, riots, earthquakes, hatred, human trafficking, murder, sexual deviance. I mean, all we're waiting for is pestilence, right? I mean, that's the only thing that needs to be filled in. The point is, all this stuff is happening. Do you believe that God's plan is still on the table? Or has something kind of bumped In God's providence to say, no, I don't know that he really is in control. Or is he as we began today? Even with all these things going on, even as it's getting more and more difficult in our context, even to raise our kids. Do you believe that God's plan is still on the table? It's a very important question. And here you have the apostles gathered and God is saying, I have a plan. I have a mission. I want you to do something, and they're thinking, "Okay, that's good," but um, you know there are these people called the Romans, and I mean, it's all sorts of obstacles that, can, that are going to come. And friends, we must we must believe that God is sovereign and His will is still being accomplished, even with all the mess that's going around in the world. He is working his will. It is not a vain thing for Johnny and Tia to say, we're going to Turkey. In a time like this, wouldn't it be better just to stay home and kind of surround your kids and protect them and make sure that they're, no, there's a, a mission to be accomplished. Secondly, from that, do you believe that nothing can stand in the way of God's plan? Just consider all of the above that I have just mentioned. Add to that this, this powerful, wicked movement of Islam around the world. I mean, as a human being, that should shake you. Just the way, the attitude that can come out of that. I realize not all people who are Muslim have those kind of radical attitudes, but boy, it's there. Just the, 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 the rise of communism. Not only across the seas, but just stirring up. And I'm not talking just about the political side. I'm just talking about how you treat people under that kind of a paradigm. Atheism, far more rampant. But friends, we must remember what Jesus says. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. All these obstacles, all these struggles, all these difficulties you may be facing individually, you may be dealing with your kids, you may be dealing in the workplace, you may be dealing with you know, co-workers and different ideas that are going around. They're all obstacles, challenges, ways to say, boy, this is too bad, this is too tough. How in the world is this going to be done? But we must be committed in our belief that nothing can stand in the way of God's plan. We need to rise up and to trust that he who is seated on his throne hasn't fallen off of it. He's fully seated, secure, and knows what he's doing. And in And all of that, we're reminded of that old song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Right? So this is all perspective. Just like Ed began here, it's all perspective that helps us understand God is in control. Number three, are you committed to being ready for what God has next? Ready does not equal having full knowledge. Ready equals being prepared, being fit, being adjusted, being equipped, being united. Are you ready for what God has next? Now, I don't know what God has next. I'm not saying somehow, you know, this weekend, the Holy Spirit's going to be unleashed. No, why? Because the Holy Spirit was already unleashed at Pentecost. But God might do something in a miraculous way in our church. Now, hear this, friends. When people talk to me, hey, you know, tell me about your church at Gateway. I typically describe, well, if we have everyone present, we have about 120 people. When I come to this passion, I'm thinking to myself, huh. What God can do with 120 people that are committed to seeing his will be done. Now, we've got to be careful with that. That doesn't mean that we measure our success based on what happens in the book of Acts. We measure our success based on Our faithfulness to what God has called us to. We might remain 120 people for the next 10 years to celebrate our 20th anniversary and be perfectly faithful to everything that God wants us to do, although we won't because we're sinful. We all know that. But you get the point. But 120 people. God wants to work his will through us. Are we ready? So, from our text, there are four things, right? And, and they're obvious things because we've already talked about them. This is how it works. Devote yourself to the fellowship of the body of Christ. Friends, take your church attendance and membership seriously. See, what God might have for us next could be a revival. It could be difficulty, it could be persecution, it could be unbelief, it could be conflict, it could be bad theology, it could be grief, or it could be loss. In all of that, God wants us then to apply the things that are flowing from this text, that that our fellowship with the body of Christ is a priority for us. Don't wait for others to pursue you, you pursue them. Open your home, practice hospitality, get comfortable talking about the things of God with other people. Devote yourself to fellowship. Secondly, devote yourself to the ministry and activity of prayer. One commentator I read this week had this little anecdote. I thought it was helpful because he was saying, you know, I appreciate what, uh," he says, when I I go out to to the restaurant and I'm sitting down and the waitress comes out and she says, would you like, you know, so, you know, top off with your coffee. He always says yes. And his point was to say that I always want my coffee to be warm. I never want it to get cold. And he's using this as an analogy for prayer. You know, I always want my prayer to be hot. I don't want my walk with God to be cold. So I am constantly want to be like that, that waitress. When I'm thinking about prayer, you know, yes, I want to do that. Yes, I want to do that. Yes, I want to do that. Why? Because I'm trying to keep it hot. And friends, I wonder, do we need a spiritual warm-up? Or are we almost empty? When you pray, is it just in times of crisis and need? Or is it your habit and your practice in order to be prepared and ready? Three, devote yourself to the study and application of the Scriptures. And we, we talk about that, we emphasize that here a lot. You know this, but friends, having a grasp of how God's word fits together, how it works, how to interpret it, is critical. And finally, devote yourself to praying for your leaders and for those who are being raised up in the wings. God works his will through chosen leadership. Here at Gateway, we have three elders, myself, Ed Bassard, Albert Castaneda, we have a prospective elder, and Alex Vakulin, who's at the back. But we always want to be investing in men, seeking to discern if they are qualified to serve Gateway as elders or not. See, these are essential characteristics of a church that is seeking to be ready for what God has next. And for the apostles, in just a couple of days, all heaven is going to break loose. Lord, help us today. Um, we know that you are a great God and Savior. We know that you are seated on your throne. We know that you've called us to something that is around the corner. So Lord, help us to do the things that are necessary to be prepared, Lord, for whatever happens to be next for us Give us wisdom. Give us a love for one another. Lord, help us to to enjoy prayer. Help us to to spend time in your word. Lord, help us um, to prioritize right leadership in the church and to do it, Lord, for your glory. We ask this in your precious holy name. It is late, and so we're going to allow you to be dismissed. But the band, if you want to just play while we're being dismissed, that would be great. Okay? Is that good?